thing. I think we'd say as it relates to religion, he's a hostile witness, wouldn't you say? That's a hostile witness. Judge, can we treat him as a hostile witness? Thank you. This interview is especially interesting because it's between a very popular atheist and a liberal minister. And at one point in the interview, the liberal minister asked Hitchens if her Christianity was any different, in his opinion, than the rest of Christendom. So this is what Marilyn says. The religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. Now, she's calling us fundamentalists, okay? That's what she's saying. I'm a liberal Christian, she says, and I don't take the stories from the Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith, which I would call conservative orthodox faith, and liberal religion, where we don't really believe this book? Here's what Christopher Hitchens says, world's most famous atheist at the time. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're not really in any meaningful sense a Christian. So that is the world's most famous atheist telling a liberal preacher that she's not a Christian at all if she doesn't believe the Bible because he can't be, because it's not Christianity. The disciples did not adopt a liberal view of who Jesus was. They met the Son of God and the Messiah who validated that through his miracles. Now Jesus had been ministering for a short time when we read this text. In both Judea to the south and Galilee to the north. Judea is the center of religious activity. Galilee is sort of the, uh, the area where Jesus was born, the area where most of his ministry took place. He had already perform performed uh, some miracles, but not a lot, but enough to become somewhat regionally famous. So his popularity is rising. He's now drawing big crowds. He's getting Snapchatted and tweeted out everywhere at this point. A lot of followers, a lot of likes. He may have already gathered a few of his disciples, actually. Some of his disciples were actually handoffs from John the Baptist. In fact, if you look at John chapter 1, you'll see that John the Baptist had a certain set of disciples, and Andrew was one of them. Andrew was sort of a handoff from John the Baptist to Jesus. So Andrew was close with John the Baptist. John the Baptist said one day, hey, Andrew, and somebody was with him as well, this is the one I was talking about. John the Baptist sort of does the handoff to Jesus. They start following Jesus. One of Andrew's brothers is Simon Peter. Now, no doubt introductions had been made. I have no doubt that Jesus had spoken many times because Andrew and Simon are brothers. He'd spoken many times by the sea there. Simon Peter knew who he was. This is not a first, you know, probably a first, second, third, or fourth, you know, time that they were together. So they were, they were getting to know each other. They knew Jesus. They knew that John the Baptist had endorsed Jesus. Jesus is down by the Sea of Galilee. As I said, it's called the uh, Lake of Gennesaret, Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias, depending on whether it's you know, Jewish, Roman, etc. It's probably late morning. Fishing is over. They fished at night then. Peter, James, and John are washing their nets. There are two boats. This is a family business along with some hired individuals. The two boats are in the shallows. Maybe they're pulled up on the sand a little bit. They're there along with Zebedee, who's the father of some of them, and some hired men, possibly some day laborers, maybe people who are part of the business every day. We don't know. The other uh, Gospels that include this are Matthew in chapter 4, Mark in chapter 1, same story, less detail. Jesus asked, can you use one of your boats as a platform? Because right behind Jesus, there are these, these cliffs. Sea of Galilee is actually 680 feet below sea level, plus or minus. 
680 feet below sea level, which means it kind of got hot there. If you were out there in the day, you'd kind of bake. And then you have these cliffs on the edge. And so it created a natural amphitheater. Jesus is being pressed by the crowds. He's probably got hundreds, thousands of people now pressing on him. He can't get back from them to speak to them. So he says to the fishermen, can I use one of your boats? I'm just going to go out, you know, 15 or 20 yards from shore. I'm going to use that as a platform to teach. And then all the people are crowding the edge of the water. Little kids, you know, playing in the edge, dipping their feet in, just like they do when you take them to the ocean. And Jesus begins, began to uh, speak. When he's finished, he made a fishing request. Peter, I want you to put out into the deep, and I want you to put down your nets again. Now, they had just fished all night. They had caught nothing. They were putting up their gear, and it wasn't like a couple of fishing poles. These were nets that probably measured hundreds of yards long, big drag nets with buoys on top, weights on the bottom. This was extensive. They're repairing nets. They're washing nets. And as much as Peter respected Jesus, I know, and it's not in the Greek here, I'm guessing, I know Peter's thinking, Jesus, you make a good table, you make some good furniture, you don't know squat about fishing. But Peter was more respectful than I am. So he didn't say that. He thought it, but he didn't say it. They're putting up their gear. Jesus says, Peter, I want you to go fishing again. But Miracle Man gets the benefit of the doubt. And Peter basically says, okay, because it's you, Jesus. In other words, I wouldn't do this for anyone else. I've already heard your reputation. I've seen some of these miracles, and I'm pretty impressed. But because it's you, even though you don't know anything about fishing, we will do what you ask us to do. So one boat went out. You know, we're going to get too committed. We'll just take the one boat, okay, Jesus? One boat goes out with its massive circular dragnet. They start letting out the net a little at a time, perhaps hundreds of yards. And then they eventually bring it together, and you've got a massive circle, and hopefully whatever's in that circle you can now capture. Weights at the bottom, buoys at the top. So hundreds of yards of net are let out. They make this great circle, and they begin to sort of pull the net in and just start winding it in, you know. And today on a trawler, you would have a mechanical, you know, wench and a giant cable and be pulling in a net far greater than this. But they begin pulling this in by hand, and, and there were I'm thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of drag on that net. And I'll explain why I say that in a moment. This wasn't the great catch. This was the miraculous catch. Peter viewed this as a miracle, not a great day on the water. Of course, every day on the water can be a great day. But anyway, so they've got this, they start feeling thousands of pounds, and they're thinking, are we snagged on the bottom? They just can't understand, and they start feeling the pulsating of the neck, the net, and it was as if the whole net was stuck. And again, it wasn't a great catch. It was historic because nets were breaking. They called their partners who then got off the shore and both boats get involved. And both boats were so full of fish that before they got to shore, they're taking on water. Now, I want you to stop there for a second because we're going to show you a little history here. Look at this picture. That is a boat that we have found in 1986 from the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. It's called the Galilee boat or the Jesus boat. Not necessarily used by Jesus or the disciples. It's probably one of thousands that were from that era. So the Sea of Galilee, they had a drought in that area. The sea, you know, sunk. 
so that you could get into the, where the sea usually was a little bit, and this was buried in the mud. And they had to get archaeologists on this just like that. In 12 days, they were able to sort of preserve this and get it out of there because they were afraid if it rains or we get any water, it's going to fill right back up. We won't be able to work with it. So they pulled that out, and you can see they've got all kinds of uh, materials surrounding it, holding it together. But I want you to note this. That boat is not like the little rowboat I used to run around in as a kid or the canoe. That boat is not like my double-engine, you know, Sylvan that I used to take out on the Mississippi River in a couple of foot swells. That boat's 27 feet long. That boat is seven and a half feet wide, and it's about 4.3 feet deep from top to bottom. That's a big boat. Now, if you're out there in a little rowboat, do you know how many people you can put in a rowboat before it would sink? Or how many fish? You, you add a, another 200-pound dude on a fishing trip to a rowboat, it might go down a half an inch in the water, an inch. You can put thousands of pounds in a little rowboat. Imagine what it took to sink something 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and over four feet deep. To put these two boats in that condition means this. This wasn't a five or ten minute exercise. I imagine these dudes were working on this for hours. They're trying to hang onto these nets. They're trying to pull a little bit over. They're grabbing fish. Fish are slopping over the net. The nets are breaking. Two boats are involved. People on shore are watching. Hours are going on. They're exhausted. There are thousands and thousands and thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of pounds going into this boat. It is unstable. They're both sinking. It was a miracle of nature. This wasn't Jesus sort of, you know, people who don't really believe the Bible like, yeah, Jesus did what we all do, you know, when you're by the edge of great water and you kind of see a shoal of fish kind of moving around and Jesus is like, hey, you know, put out there, I think you might catch some fish. No, don't insult God. Jesus controlled the nature, the, the, the the nature that is in the sea. Just like he calmed the wind and the waves, he caused all of those fish to come and hit those nets, sinking two massive boats just about. And that's why that day, that was enough for Peter. It's like, I've been fishing my whole life. I have never seen anything like this. It was a miracle to him because his response was not, not like, hey, what a great day. We're gonna do well in market. His response was, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. His response was, I shouldn't even be in your presence. There's something unique about you. He knew this was, this was a God thing. This was a miracle. And it's that kind of thing about Jesus that makes us follow. If we don't have a Jesus like that, I don't want to follow him. If we, we're not going to follow somebody who just thinks he's God, but he got that one wrong. Are you serious? I follow Jesus because he's God. I follow Jesus because that dude walked on water. He raised the dead. He healed people of every kind of malady. He can do anything. He rose from the dead. Death couldn't hold him. That's what you're willing to die for. I don't want an ethical teacher. I can get that in any world religion. And I certainly don't want to follow somebody who doesn't know who he is. He's God. So they were willing to sort of give up fishing. Good move. Second, Sorry about the red face, it's the coffee. Jesus' all-in pitch was all about catching others. Now, here's a big deal. This is a big deal. I want you to think about this. 
Christianity has a lot of different emphases, I would agree. I, I, I don't preach on just one thing all the time. We go through various teachings of Jesus, various teachings of the apostles, a lot of Old Testament narrative history. Jesus could have talked about any number of things in his initial pitch. They're going to follow him. I mean, Peter's going to follow him at any point because he's the greatest fishing dude he's ever met. I mean, Peter's in. You just about sunk two boats, okay? I'm, I'm in. Whatever it is, Jesus, whatever you want to tell us to do, that's what we're going to do. But I want you to notice this. The one thing Jesus spoke about in his pitch was reaching a lost world. That was it. Now, I'm not saying Jesus doesn't care about more things. We know he does. But his pitch was, we're going to reach people. This fishing, this harvest you just saw, it's going to be like that with people. We're going to reach people because people need God. And you're going to get between their need and where they're at. You're, you're going to help reach them. And it wasn't just that he said that because they were fishing and that was the only metaphor that came to mind or illustration that came to mind. Because that's what the call was about. That's what the call was about. The initial pitch was about catching people. Here's my point. And I'm going to make you really uncomfortable now and it is intentional. Can we be Jesus followers without being actively involved in that process? Can we be truly Christian? I'm not saying have we invited Jesus into our life. I'm saying can we be truly Christian if we're not involved in the same process that was the only pitch Jesus made when he actually asked them to leave it all and follow him. Can we personally or corporately set aside the primary issue that Jesus recruited to? Would his recruitment be any different if he were standing here today and asking you to follow him? Would he have a whole other set of things that were important to him and he wouldn't be talking about reaching people? I don't think so. I think it'd be the same thing. And I'm in good company. Listen to this. I find this story absolutely shocking. So this is put together by Leith Anderson. Leith Anderson, down in the States, I, I know Leith personally. I, I think he would remember me. He's a pretty old man at this point. He was the pastor of Wooddale Church. He became the president of the National uh, Association of Evangelicals in the U.S., says, in the People's Republic of China, the largest nation in the world, a billion people strong, is what is called the Three Self Church. This is the state-approved church. Several of us from Wooddale a couple years ago were in Beijing, and we went to one of the services of the Three Self Churches. It was an old building built around the turn of the last century. We had a translator there. There were hymns. Some of them were to Western tunes, which we knew. They read the Bible. They had prayers. There was a sermon, a Bible teaching, that I thought was fine. Okay, communist China. He's there listening to the sermon. He says, it was good. It was good. It was orthodox. But they're not allowed to evangelize. That's the deal with the state. You can exist, but you can't reach others. You can do your thing as long as your thing doesn't include persuading 
somebody else. That's the primary stipulation in a communist country between a a church they're okay with and one they will persecute. You can't proselytize. There are about 50 million Christians in the People's Republic of China, and I think that number is a lot larger today. There are about 50 million Christians when this was written in the People's Republic of China who have chosen not to be part of the state church not to be part of the three-self church, and they meet in house churches instead because they're convinced you can't be a Christian unless you evangelize. Think about that. They say that the two go together, and if you don't evangelize, you're not a Christian. They would say that those who are in the three-self church are really not Christians as far as the New Testament definition is concerned. Now, I mean, I know, I know I'm in your face here, and I know you're getting uncomfortable. You might even not like me right now, and I'm actually okay with that. All those house church Christians could avoid prison and persecution if they would just stop witnessing. Yet they have created an alternative culture, subversive and illegal, in order to reach people, in order to obey the Great Commission from Jesus to make disciples of all nations, in order to reflect that telling others is central to our own response to Jesus. It's the priority within the priority of following Jesus. Jesus could have made it about adventure. He could have said, guys, I'm going to set us on a course of excitement for three years that you won't beat. It's going to be like, it's going to be greater than the BC fishing trip that I just went on. I mean, that's, it's going to be adventure. It's better than camping in the mountains. It's better than camping in the mountains and being chased by a grizzly bear and living to tell about it. It's better, it's adventure. I'm, I'm going I'm to take you on that trip. Or it's about your maturity. I'm going to make you into people you can't imagine. You're going you're gonna to be so spirit-filled and spirit-led, and you're going to look like God. I'm just going to make you, I'm going to perfect you, which is part of the Christian message. God's going to make us better. He's going to make us more like Christ. Or I'm going to give you the best life possible. It's not going to be a perfect life, but knowing me will mean that you know I'm in your life, I'm guiding you, I'm leading you towards a destination you can't see. You can trust that. And because Jesus performed the miracle of the fishers, maybe they follow him just for that. But it wasn't about that. He didn't say that. He said, I'm going to make this about you reaching the world. That's the adventure. Could have talked about 50 other things. And right before he left, what's the subject he's talking about? Fruitfulness. And he's not talking about the fruit of the Spirit. He's talking about changing the world and reaching people. Third, the all-in expectation was the norm, not the exception. And it was still persuasive. So you don't have in Luke, Luke doesn't record the words, follow me. I believe both Matthew and Mark do, where Jesus says to them, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Here he just says he's going to make them fishers of men. So Luke just has a little different wording. But in other passages, these are the kinds of things Jesus said in his pitch. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. In other words, I'm going to be hung on a cross. Good chance you're going to be hung on a cross. Don't follow me unless you're willing to experience that. Here's another way he said it. If you want to follow me, you need to hate your mother, father, sister, brother, son, and daughter. It's like, what? Jesus? There's so many commands about being a good parent and a good father and mother and loving others. And it was just a literary sort of tool to say, 
compared to our love of Jesus, all other earthly relationships just don't matter. He's going to be that important. And if we're following Jesus, you'll in fact be a better husband or wife or son or daughter or brother or sister. But his point is, I'm going to be number one. Jesus made extreme demands because following him was always meant to be our first priority. That was the pitch. It wasn't the, hey, follow me and I'm going to give you the great life. There's a good chance that because you know me, you're going to be healthier and wealthier and live a little longer. You have a little bigger, you know, RSP and maybe a boat in that third stall in the garage and, you know, some really nice cars. And you won't have to lease them, you'll own them. That's not what Jesus talked about. I mean, you can find that on cable TV tonight, but that's not what Jesus said. He made extreme demands. But because he was Jesus, and because of what they saw, here's the response. Matthew 4, 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Talking about Peter and Andrew. So the first boat, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Then he gets to the second boat. He makes the same pitch to them. Uh, Matthew 4, 21, immediately they left the boat, and I think this is included for a reason, and their father. The the apostle makes the point, they left dad, which you do not do in that culture. You do not walk away from the family business and dishonor your father. They left their father and followed him. Mark says it this way, they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants. Doesn't that sound like a little bit of a dig? Like the impact of you're walking away from dad, you walk away from the family business, you're the sons, you're leaving dad with the hired servants. They left it. Jesus was now the priority. Imagine that conversation as Zebedee, who's been building this business his whole life to pass on to his sons and their cousins and others. Imagine that conversation. Zebedee's thinking, hey, hey, whoa, 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 guys. I mean, I know that you've always had some crazy idea about, you know, running off and doing something on your own, but I spent my life building this for you. Where are you going? This is your future. No, Dad. You just saw what happened. Jesus is our future. Hey, what what about your mom? What if something happens to me? You got insurance. What about your families? And which is something we don't hear a lot about in the Gospels. I, I believe these guys had families, probably, at least some of them. Yeah, Dad, I think you're gonna have to take care of them too while we're gone on our little mission trip. Sorry. Can we have a conversation about that? No, you're you're good, Dad. What about your paycheck? Yeah, I'm worried about that too. Did you just see what Jesus just did though? Uh, After market today, I think we'll be good for a little while. Jesus from that moment was first priority. He was the priority. And the priority within the priority was reaching others. All right, I want to close quickly here with just two apps. First is the miraculous Christ enough to motivate me to be a better brand of disciple or to motivate me to a better brand of discipleship. Is that enough? If we really believe this stuff happened the way the gospel writers describe, and I do, there's more evidence for the veracity of the New Testament documents than any other ancient literature. If this happened the way that they say it happened, why wouldn't we respond the same way as they did? 
I want to compare two stories here and ask you, which one of these best describes our brand of discipleship as Christians in the Western world? The size of the market for athleisure, now athleisure is um, it's a coinage officially adopted into Merriam-Webster's lexicon. Athleisure grew 5% each year between 2009 and 2014. It was from $54 billion to $68 billion. Now athleisure are clothes that are meant for the gym, but we wear them to make ourselves look good even if we never go to the gym. Got it? Like Lululemon, a great Canadian company. My daughter used to work for Lululemon, so I get Lululemon gifts. And Lululemon is made to sort of pull everything in and make it look great, even if you're not in great shape. All right? That's athleisure. And that market exploded. The trend accounted for nearly all growth in the apparel, footwear, and accessories sector during that period. People in cities were wearing fancy athletic clothing with brand names like Lululemon, Lucy, Lorna Jane, Gap Body, Athleta, Nike, everywhere including to the office. According to the article in the New York Times, the market may hit $100 billion by the end of 2016. Well, I've got to tell you what actually happened. In 2018, it hit $155 billion. By 2026, they expect it to be $257 billion, a quarter of a trillion dollars on athletic wear. But it's called athleisure. But there's a strange twist in this growth of athleisure. Most people are just wearing it. They're not actually working out in it. The same article continues, for many wearers, the athletic part of athleisure remains aspirational. Like, I'm going to wear these cool clothes that sort of tuck things in, but I'm never going to the gym. I might someday. Sales of yoga clothes increased 10 times as much as actual participation in yoga classes during that time. So in other words, we're all about looking the part. We look like we're on our way to the gym. We look like we're serious about the gym, but really... We've just got the clothes, and they make us look good. Compare that to this. The Declaration of Independence was signed by 56 men down in the States in signing that document to put their lives and their fortunes on the line. Treason was the word the British would use to describe what they did. We didn't handle the British the way you guys did. You were much nicer people. That, that was not an insult in any way. Treason was the word they would use for what the Declaration writers did. Many of them lost everything. Thomas Nelson was one of those men. He was wealthy. He often paid for or lent the money to buy the munitions that George Washington's men desperately needed. During the Battle of Yorktown, British General Cornwallis took over Nelson's home as his headquarters. It wasn't just a move for Cornwallis's comfort or to make symbolic point as to who was in charge. It was a defensive move. He knew that Washington's men would never open fire on the estate of their great friend and benefactor Thomas Nelson, who's funding the Revolutionary War. Nelson saw the predicament General Washington was in and how the cannons were not even pointed in the direction of the enemy's headquarters. He quietly went up to Washington and urged him to open the cannon fire on his own home, and I'm sure this was before insurance. Now Cornwallis' new headquarters. Washington opened, fired, and they destroyed the home of the person who was helping to fund the war. Now think about those two stories. Which one describes our Christianity, our brand of Christianity? Do we just like have the clothes and sort of have all the trappings of what it looks like to be a Christ follower? Or are we like, God, take aim at my life. Whatever's here that needs to get out of the way, you can destroy it and rebuild the life that you want, but I want to follow you because you're God. I think in many ways, 
And I'm including myself. I'm not trying to harp on you. We've got athleisure Christianity. It's easy. We don't even have to go to the gym. Is the miraculous Christ enough to motivate me to a better brand of discipleship? Hey, let's honor. Let's honor what we actually believe. We follow God, God's Son, who did all these great things to prove that He really was God's Son, though, so that we would give our lives to what's important to Him. Not just look the part, but change the world. I want to change the world. And it's not easy. Don't you want to change the world? Don't you want to see God in the people around you? Second, have I prioritized the primary priority within the call to follow, which is catching people, the way Jesus put it, after catching all those fish? Is that a priority? I know it's hard. I know it's hard, and I know it's harder here than where I came from because fewer people are people of faith. You do this in Canada, we're a little further out there than if you do it in the Midwest, where just about everyone, there are no atheists in Minnesota. Only a couple that work at the University of Minnesota. That's it, in the philosophy department. You're looking at me like that was mean. That was funny. A little mean, but funny. I mean, there just aren't. Everyone in Minnesota is born Catholic or Lutheran, baptized as a baby. I mean, everyone there is sort of in this Christian umbrella. That's what I come from. Even people coming to faith, they all believe in God. They're all somewhat committed to the Bible. You know, it's, it's a different world there. You go in the southern U.S., it's like Alberta used to be. It's kind of like the Bible Belt. I don't see it anymore here, but compared to eastern Canada, I get it, it is. But you go to the southern U.S., and it's just a whole different culture. We're, we're, in, a, we're in a country that is post-Christian. It's harder. It's harder to let people know what you believe. And the U.S. isn't that far behind. I think the culture will hold it longer as, as sort of a culturally Christian nation, but the reality is Canada's further away on this. But it's our job. It's what we're called to. We, we don't get to say, oh, it's really tough here. People won't gonna like me if I, you don't have to be obnoxious. I get in conversations all the time. By the time the conversation's over, people know two things. That guy is nuts and he's a pastor. Just those two things. People in my condo, he's nuts, he's a little funny, not sure where it's coming from, and he's a pastor at Bethany Chapel, and he'd like me to maybe visit there sometime. And they usually learn the nuts part before the pastor part. See, we just got to learn to be natural with who we are and what we believe. So, I mean, are there people in your life? Do you have people in your life where there's the time you're spending with other people is with people who don't know God. We go to social times in our, in our building all the time now. The point is to connect with people. That's the whole point. The elders of the church actually are rearranging my job description, so that's actually part of my job, rather than, oh, it's nice if you do that. And I wanted it rearranged that way. It's what Jesus called us to. It's the priority within the priority. So do we, are we cultivating relationships? You don't have to be weird. You don't have to be in your face with anybody. Just be you and follow Jesus and let people know. Do you have some people in your life you're praying for that don't know Jesus? And a little pitch for something we're going to do in 
a few weeks here. We're going to, in September 12th through the first weekend in October, we're going to call it Celebrate Sunday. And what we're trying to do is bring people back to church. Now, you know people, maybe they're between churches. COVID has, you know, uprooted a lot of people's connections to churches. Maybe they're between churches and you know that. Maybe they're Bethany attenders who aren't back yet. Maybe they're Bethany attenders that are thinking they're not coming back. Maybe they're friends you have that are friendly to Christianity. Maybe they're friends you have that are outside of the faith. You're not sure how friendly they are. But would you be a part of inviting people back during that month? Saying, just try it. We'll go out for lunch together afterwards. Tell us what you think. We think our pastor's crazy. If you agree, well, we'll have something to talk about. Celebrate Sunday. Because Jesus' priority has to be ours for us to have an authentic brand. The brand we say we signed up for. God, we thank you for your word. We follow you because we, we believe this stuff. And we believe that these individuals followed your son around this planet in that small area, that semi-desert area in Israel. They followed him for three years and they saw him do incredible things because he's God in the flesh. And so they wrote about it and we believe we have an accurate reflection of that. And so just like they did, we've said we're willing to leave everything and follow you. And we need to keep reminding ourselves of what that meant then compared to what it means now and make sure that our brand is authentic. So help us to reflect what you emphasized when you first called those 12, especially those four that day, that you want us to be fishers of men, want us to care about the people around us. Help us to be faithful to that in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to BethanyChapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.